um, and then that can that can really translate quite well into the richness of the project and into the outcomes of project of the project too. So I work down here at a satellite campus for the mothership, which is in Rockhampton. What we do, we're a behavioural science institute, Sharon, and we kind of. Um, we, as an eclectic bunch, as I said, we kind of do everything. Well, not everything. We sort of started, I guess, traditionally as a fatigue and sleep, um, with a fatigue and sleep-based focus as a lab. Um, and when I came uh, and joined the team back when we were at UniSA, I came as a um, postdoc research fellow for the Cooperative Research Centre for Rail Innovation, um, having completed my PhD in Sheffield, and and that's when, you know, I started doing a lot of things on safety science and specifically doing lots of things in the rail space. And since then, it's kind of broadened out to transport more generally and then other industries. So we tend to do a lot of stuff that's about human factors, the biological basis of human factors, if you will, which is about, you know, shift work, performance, um, operational readiness. And, and then that's led to many other areas as well. So, you know, I do a whole bunch of things outside of transport too. Um, anywhere where there's people, anywhere where they're interacting with their environments, effectively anywhere where there's a need for human factors, um, import and ergonomic, ergonomics import. Let's talk about a project that you've worked on or some of the projects that you're working on. Um, what are you working on at the moment? Oh, okay. Let's see. Um, there's a lot to choose from. Um, I'll talk about one of the major federally funded grants that I received a couple of years ago. Um, and this project goes by the, the pen name, the Goldilocks project, um, which we're applying in the rail domain. And it's something that I presented on a couple of years back at Hafiza, maybe just pre-COVID when we just we're looking at getting the project and we managed to successfully get it from the government. And this project's a really interesting one. It's theoretically very innovative, but also has a lot of applied potential. And it was funded from what we call the Discovery Project Scheme from the federal government, the Australian Research Council, which means that it must have um, a suitable level of theoretical innovation to make the research worthwhile because it may not work out, but it's worth investing in to see if it does. Um, because if it does, it could have enormous benefit and translate to other industries. So the problem that we went into this project with was um, related to all the health and well-being research I've done specifically in the rail domain with train drivers, uh, where um, there's a lot of issues, basically. You know, we've ended up in a situation where, you know, one in two drivers um, um, is, you know, we're talking about levels of obesity that are quite prevalent. And we're also talking about uh, cardiometabolic uh, disorders and health issues that are now rife and way above the general population levels. Um, and a lot of this has happened because of the way the system is now shaped and designed. And what we sort of did and argued was that we, unfortunately, as human factors and ergonomics professionals, have contributed to this. Because if you remember, or maybe if you don't remember, once upon a time, rail was very different to how it is now, Sharon. It was very a very physically demanding job. 
you know, there were two drivers, there was a fireman usually in the in the train, in the locomotive. It was very physical, lots of standing and moving around. And there were a whole smorgasbord of issues that we don't see today associated with that level of risk and that movement. And over time, we made that environment more more safe, more comfortable for them, if you will. You know, we looked at their comfort, we built really good seats, we uh, gradually started removing that second driver. So the first driver became the only driver. It became ergonomically sound, you know, in that environment. And then as we started to look at technology, we introduced safety systems that required the, techno- the driver to be attached to them in many ways. You know, they can't separate themselves from them while they're driving. Their feet are locked in a certain position. Their arms are locked in a certain position. And over time, through all these all these quote unquote improvements and developments in the design of the cab, we've now ended up in the on the other side of the spectrum. No longer do we have a physically demanding job with lots of movement that's quite strenuous. We now have a job that's completely physically undemanding and actually is locking the driver in a certain position. And that is a seated position. And, you know, we're seeing a lot and hearing a lot about the new and emergent hazard associated with sedentariness and the links that it has with, you know, your physical well-being. And in a, in a rail environment, it's not just physical, it's also about the safety. So you might remember, you know, back in the early 2000s, the um, the tragic uh, waterfall accident in New South Wales, New South Wales, uh, which resulted in seven fatalities after the, the driver had a cardiac event at the helm. Um, we know that maintaining their health um, is of critical importance for their own well-being, but also because the system itself is engineered towards, you know, managing its own safety. And therefore, the driver's health and well-being becomes a safety concern. And so this project was basically built on this burning platform, if you will, which was We've gone all the other side of the to this side of the equation. How do you bring us back? And then that allowed us to bring in this new and emerging theorization around the Goldilocks principle, which people use everywhere. You know, it's not an original idea. People talk about Earth as the Goldilocks planet because it's in the sweet spot to sustain life and the right, you know, the right um elements on the on the periodic table to actually engender that. And um We're sort of saying, is there a Goldilocks zone on the trains that we can maybe find our way to get back to that will actually not only produce health benefits for the driver, but do away with a lot of these other concerns? Um, Because if we start to just follow very traditional occupational health paradigms, which say, you know, um, walk during your uh, lunch hours or, um, you know, actively commute to work on bikes or be more physically active outside of work we're actually ignoring the fact that work takes up most of our time and if we can somehow redesign the job to create these incidental benefits around health then it will just happen by virtue of the job you're not going to ask people to volitionally do things which will very quickly fall by the wayside if, if, if other priorities emerge. And in rail, you know, it's it's a, a high-pressure job because you're, you're delivering a service and it's about timekeeping and some of these 
um, little phases of recovery, like when you get to the end of a, you know, a schedule and you go back to a depot, they can very easily disappear if you're running late on time. And you might also find yourself not wanting to be physically active when you're taking a break because the job is actually quite mentally um, uh, engaging in terms of its workload. So it was really about trying to understand whether we can pull that back and how do we go about doing that and what kinds of factors do we need to consider and how would this challenge be sold to an industry that maybe can't even consider the possibility of a driver not sitting or a driver uh, moving around in a very different way or rosters being changed in a way to reflect that. That was our big burning question, Sharon, and that's what kind of stimulated this research. And we're collecting data from passenger train drivers, from tram drivers, from freight drivers to explore exactly how much movement they got and what tasks they do to then explore what kinds of um, changes can be brought into the job. So that's an example of a project that we've got that has real excellent uh, potential. And if we can make it work in this environment or show that it has potential and return on investment, then the possibilities for other environments like, you know, truck driving, other environments where people can't quite see change might become might become more real. Any ideas on how we improve driver physical movement given that they're currently sedentary? Yeah, um, there's, I mean, it's too early to give you concrete answers around that because we're actually about to enter into our third stage, which is going to explore that directly with um, the organisation. So it's very much co-design. It's about participative work. So it's using the participative ergonomics or participatory ergonomics paradigm to ensure that we go back to these, uh, to these, to this industry, these organizations with the data that we have, data associated with how much movement they've got and data associated with where opportunities for movement might be. But we work with them to then explore these and, you know, um, you know, use various simulation methods to explore and figure out where movement can be brought back in, what the impacts of this might be. And it might actually be that we've got to look at, you know, redesigning rosters because that's one of the biggest constraints of this environment. So how can rosters be redesigned and be changed in a way that actually can bring Goldilocks principles into the fore? Um, you know, blue skies, stuff that's downstream associated with physical environmental change, like redesigning of cabs and things like that, they, that may also be in the horizon. But at the moment, we're looking at things that can be done, you know, from in the short, mid and long term and what that might look like. Um, it might involve looking not just at uh, the rostering, but the scheduling as well. Effectively, it's about how much the organisations want to invest to ensure that the kinds of issues that they deal with that produce a lot of problems for them, like, you know, absenteeism associated with health, presenteeism issues that then, of course, are also linked with that, um, issues associated with obstructive sleep apnea, issues associated with signals past at danger. They're all connected. You know, they're all part of this system. And I think the more that we draw attention to this being an important lever, the more that they're willing to invest into it. And then I guess work with us on these sorts of changes. But we are looking at big system changes. You know, we're talking about the rostering frameworks, 
the service delivery frameworks that exist because the, that's those are the things that tie um, the way that drivers work in their job completely. And that uh, that is the space where I think we can find those levers to move and, and to pull that will give us the opportunities to to bring to bring that spectrum back into the middle. What are the responses like from the drivers that you work with on these on the Goldilocks project? That's a great question, Sharon. And um, I'll say that it's been quite easy to get it past the unions because when the unions, which are a very important element in the system, are aware of this kind of research, they they want to know what it's about, how it works, and of course, organisations want their endorsement too. And in this project, which is not about losing drivers, it's about improving the well-being of drivers. It becomes it becomes quite easy to uh, generate a narrative that they'll respond to, which is an authentic narrative because that's what the project is about. It's about their longevity. And even if we do down the down the line end up in a scenario where you know there's increasing sorry, there's increasing automation in in the environment and they're looking at changes to the way that drivers um function and work and perform their tasks you know for the most part in most environments we're probably still going to have a physical human being there which means that questions around what they do and how they do around with their job are still very relevant so the big picture is that the unions and the drivers have been quite responsive. One of the things that we have found some question marks around was some of the, the methods that we're using to collect data. So, for example, in the first phase, um, we're attaching accelerometers to their thighs, um, which allow us to actually see what their movement looks like. And these accelerometers tell us when they're standing, when they're sitting, and when these transitions occur. But of course, when we're telling, when we're talking to these organizations and we're saying we're going to put these devices onto your thigh, which may or may not involve shaving the hair off your thigh and then attaching it with, you know, these industry standard, you know, materials like tachyderm and so on to strap it in place. Um, that becomes problematic because they want to know what that technology is doing, what it's collecting, the fact that it's on for 24, 7, 4, 8 days is also a problem for them because they want to know, you know, not just about handling and overcoming the irritability of having this device in your thigh that cannot be moved, but also, you know, what's it collecting, Anjum? Is it going to be, is it, is it going to know what I'm doing at night? <laughs> is it going to know what I'm doing during the day? How is it going to work? And so kind of making it clear that this technology, you know, doesn't radiate anything uh, physically, all it can tell us, it gives us a lot of squiggly lines. And these are the, what the lines look like. No one can really interpret, you know, we're using software to tell us when these transitions occur um, and what they look like. And then we're, you know, getting them to give us an idea of when their shift starts and ends so that we can, you know, um, we can work with the data in a way that gives us that window as well as what's happening outside of work and leisure time. Once they understand what the technology is doing and how it works, and they also know that they're going to get paid because we're obviously wanting to incentivize involvement and also you know, recognize the fact that there's a bit of inconvenience, then they get on board. But um, the moment you start saying you're going to put devices on people and we'll be on them for a full week, um, come rain or shine, and this is how you kind of wear it. 
um, you start to, they start to think, is this worth my time? Once they overcome the, you know, the concerns that they may have around what the technology is doing. So that's been the biggest thing, I think. Everything else has been quite straightforward. So these are wearable technologies. Are there yes. any other form of wearable technologies that you use, either in this project or in other projects? I've I've not used wearables um, in other projects myself. Uh, we do have projects that um, include uh, wearables, um, like risk risk monitor, you know, wearables and technologies that you wear in your risk. Risk, other kinds of activity monitors, other kinds of accelerometers. Um, and there's been a lot of development and, you know, um, um, progress in the design of wearables ever since sort of, you know, Fitbit and that sort of stuff came onto the market. Most of the other kinds of technologies that I interface with are things like fatigue detection technologies that are coming in onto the market in in cars and in trucks and so on. Um, so not specifically with, a bear, with wearables myself. The Appleton crew routinely work with wearables and use wearables because, you know, they're, they're very important data collection devices about, you know, what humans are doing and how they're doing it and so on. We have, you know, wearables that people have when they're out and about. We have wearables to have when they're in the lab. Um, but myself... Um, what I was saying is that most of my work does interface with technology, that professionals, that experts, that people with real skills, for example, in environments that require those skills use. And it's about exploring the relationship between the human and the work and the technology. And one of those, for example, recently that I'm doing with um, other researchers at the university are um, is the fatigue detection um, technology Um space which is which is not a wearable but uh, an important technology that interfaces with the driver all the time to collect information and provide feedback about their levels of fatigue or rather fatigue events so how does that work and that's a big question to unpack because there are many 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 uh fatigue detection technologies on the market and there are many coming out all the time you know they're coming out all the time and they probably number you know easily into their hundreds um, and there's different types there's different designs so you can have cameras in a vehicle which look at you know look at focus on the image in front of it emit um, infrared um, and look at you know pupil dilation look at yawning look at any kind of markers of information that tell them about fatigue you can have technology that's wearables like smart caps which um, pick up EEG and things like that. You can have things attached to the wheel of um, a vehicle um, and pick up um, information about the human that way. You can um, you can have stuff built into vehicles that provide feedback if there's lane deviation that's happening, for example, which is often linked to fatigue. So you know the definition for fatigue detection technology is is quite broad and vast i would say and not something that's completely nailed down but they 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 come in all shapes and sizes is fatigue management a problem in the rail industry oh that's a really big can of worms um Sharon. fatigue is a taboo topic in um in rail and there are quite a few taboo topics and i would i would also um suggest that fatigue is a taboo topic in many industries which involve shift work 
um, because, you know, once upon a time it was about, it wasn't managed, it wasn't really considered, it wasn't thought of. But then when it came onto the radar and, you know, our um, centre, Appleton Institute, the, our former director, Drew Dawson, Professor Dawson, you know, is a preeminent scientist in the area of fatigue that would probably talk about this until the cows come home. Um, but when it became part of the equation and um, there was a realisation that people need to manage fatigue outside of work, that it's not just the province of the occupational space, but it's something that needs to be considered outside of it. It then became a very, very... Um, philosophically problematic topic because to what extent can organizations command what people do and don't do outside of work um if you know what i mean so philosophically it became quite um interesting and and those tensions around what shift workers can and can't do when they're at um at home um, as a result of the shared responsibility idea, has created a certain kind of engagement with it, has created a certain kind of stigma, I would say, associated with what can and cannot be said. So, for example, in the rail environment, you know, a lot of the research that I've done has indicated that to say that you're not turning up at work because you're fatigued is not something that people will often do. Because if they do, then, you know, their perception might be that it's going to trigger a sleep study or it's going to trigger, you know, a concern that they are managing their fatigue and, and that might then translate into, um, you know, um, jeopardy for security around my job. So culturally, there's concerns about the levels of maturity these organisations are in. So from a rail perspective, I would say that um, that there's a lot of complexity around that word and around the way that that word is used just as there is around other kinds of words um, that I do research in and in the trucking environment for example uh, and in any environment where there's professional driving involved and um, a concern for managing the driver but also for safety you'll probably find that there'll be you know that that, that term will be loaded in more ways than one. Hence, you mentioned the changing of rosters. So what do you think the outcome of the rostering changes might be? That is a question that is hard to answer without having gone through the research. And I don't really want to speculate too much about what that might entail um, at this stage because um, I think it's too early to do that, Sharon. Um, but I do know that it's going to entail a lot of participative work, as I've said. It's going to involve getting what we define as the system into a single room to understand what, what this could look like, but also what the impacts of this might be. Because we don't want to change, we, we you don't want to create a system change to that extent without having a reasonable idea um, or a healthy idea, I should say, about what kinds of things it might impact, but also be aware that you won't know everything. There are many unknowns. It's unpredictable. This might lead to unpredictable impacts and changes elsewhere. So on the one hand, you've got the question about what the change might be, but on the other hand, how best to implement it so that you are able to look at the downstream impacts and then, you know, course correct or recalibrate or change again. 
So, you know, it kind of follows a, a general systems approach that's used by SafeWork and other agencies in the country that's about, you know, looking at the work, implementing something, looking at reviewing that and seeing how that works in the trial, then coming back again and doing that quite cautiously. I think it's too early to sort of say what that might be, but just to just to, to be able to say that you're prepared to explore what rostering change, what broader environment change might look like is a big deal in and of itself. Um, and, you know, it might be that organizations aren't willing to entertain that kind of change, which is fine. But if they are, that would certainly be very, very, very valuable. But if that ends up being something that's in too hard basket, then there might be lots of other low-hanging fruit that we can, um, you know, target and yank off the tree um, and affect change. Um, so at the moment, it's too early to sort of say, what, are that, what that might look like. What are some of the biggest challenges? Yeah, that's, a, that's, that's something that I've often reflected on and thought about. And, you know, I guess my thoughts have changed substantially the more that I've done that, the more that I've worked with them and the more that I've had a chance to reflect and the more successes as well as the failures I've found. Um, they're a different, they, they're cut from a different cloth and they'll work to different KPIs and they have, rightly so, a different kind of appreciation of the role of research, of the role of academic work. And um, they also work to very different timelines to the way that researchers and academics typically work. Um, and we're now seeing increasingly, you know, projects that are being created that that don't go on for a long time, you know, maybe a year at most, um, which makes it difficult for students and PhDs and things like that. And so there's a great deal more adaptability and agility that we're having to introduce into the way that we work as researchers in a way that perhaps we didn't in the past. Um, and I'm only talking about 15 or so years worth of, you know, evolution in the space, I would say. Certainly things when I was doing my PhD were a bit different and in the UK context, people had a different kind of approach about how these things would work. Um, I think working with these big organizations is an exercise in compromise, listening, understanding exactly what their concerns might be. And in the beginning, if you sort of, you know, dig your heels in about what you sort of want too much, then, you know, that will introduce a level of inflexibility into the job that I, into the research and into the job that might actually end up hurting anything that you do. And so I think having that flexibility is important and really latching on and hearing the values, hearing what the concerns of um, individuals that are holding the purse strings that are coming to you with a problem are um, in a way that gets to their values and philosophies is important because I found that that's the common ground. So the way that we as academics work and the way that they as industry professionals work are very different. And I'm not looking to turn my job or, or to turn their job into, you know, the other. Um, there's a lot of um, authenticity and strength to be found in a practitioner role and in an academic role. 
But what where the common ground might be is what their values are and what your values are, what their philosophies are, what your philosophies are. If we can establish those very early on, then that will probably deal with a lot of the back and forth heartache that you might ex- you might find because you'll get to hear their concerns. They'll get to see what your requirements are. And then that will probably make for a much smoother journey towards, um, you know, um, the development of a contract, towards the development of a scope and a remit for a project that recognizes everyone's concerns. You know, as academics, we want to publish. We want to share the work far and wide um, because we, we know, we want we want to affect change. And we want to ensure that the people that we've never come across will read the work and it may make uh, a difference there. And we want the work to have impact. Um, Often when you're working with an organization, they may not want that because it will be confidential. There'll be a proportion of work that you're going to be doing that they don't want to get out, which means that they're going to want to um, be able to review the work and, and think about whether it might damage their reputation, their risk. And so you end up sort of looking at the project in a way that can produce outcomes in a way that overcomes a lot of these concerns. You might start understanding that there'll be a proportion of data which will be for them with findings that you will never be able to publish, you know, in the mainstream, but there will be enough um, other things that you're doing that will uh, be fine for them. Um, and then, you know, you, en- you end up sort of negotiating with them at a way that allows you to understand where those boundaries are, if you will. And so when you're working with these organizations uh, that certainly haven't had experience working with academics before because they've just worked with, say, consultants, which I would say are kind of the hybrid, probably more industry oriented than they are academic because they don't recognize the same kinds of KPIs that academics do around impact and publication, but they're certainly interested in bringing in money, which is what academics are, um, you know, effectively, um, especially research uh, intensive research only academics. They're very interested in bringing up in money to support salary, to support the work, to support staff. Um, if they, if organisations are used to working with consultants that don't necessarily have the same ethical frameworks, ethical obligations in play, then they may expect academics working in universities to follow the same approach, which is not the case at all, because, you know, we have ethical um, obligations, we have clearances that we need to follow, we have um, a level of scientific integrity that comes into play that, you know, um, may not necessarily be included or necessarily needed for uh, people who are consultants. So I think, you know, as an academic, you're kind of working with them at that level. But if I can also sort of finish this by saying that usually when people come to me directly saying that what my involvement, then um, it's usually a signal to me that things have gone very wrong (laughs) or the problem has uh, grown to the extent where they are now prepared to engage um, someone like me, noting some of these constraints on them. And they're also probably prepared to overtly hear bad news because, you know, we follow the science and we don't necessarily dress up the words 
for them. We say this is this is the data here that we're collecting and the findings are showing that this is a big issue for you in the following space. We're not wanting to soften the blow, if you will. Um, and so that's what I often find um, in that space, Sharon. What you also mentioned was failures. And often we don't talk about failures. So let's for a second go there and say what, I guess, what have you learned from failures or what are some of the greatest failures that have changed the way you now work? Uh, I might start that by sort of saying that my mantra, which I got from my sister, um, is proceed as if success is inevitable. And that, I think, has been an important mantra for me because it recognises that there are things within your control and things outside of your control. And if you if you get too bogged down with thinking about failure, um, then that may actually telegraph into the present um, and hurt the quality of the work that you're doing and affect your mindset. If you proceed if, as if success is inevitable, the grant that you're putting in, the work that you're doing, the paper that you're writing may not get up, may get rejected, but that doesn't mean it's the end of its story. It means that it might then find new life elsewhere, rising as you uh, as you will, you know, like a phoenix, and and then get published somewhere else, get up as a grant somewhere else. And so the story of that really is that if you proceed as if success is inevitable, then every failure is essentially part of the overall unfolding story associated with that um, thing, whatever it might be. My view on failure effectively sort of um, resonates with that. And so I'm, I will happily entertain failure. It might feel awful. Um, that doesn't change the way that you feel, of course. But if I have this outset and this outlook, that it might make me sort of um, deal with a lot of the imponderables that might otherwise cripple my performance as I'm working towards submission, working towards something. And then I guess failures in general, I, my, you know, it's always a case of learning and discovery. And there are many, many idioms and many, many famous quotes about the relationship between success and failure that people can Google that will probably reflect similar thinking um, out there. But I have learned a lot from, you know, the failures that I've experienced. And, and these failures aren't necessarily grants and papers and things like that, Sharon. They're also failures in the course of doing research. So you've successfully got research and there may be failures in, you know, working with other teams or failures within, you know, working within industry or, you know, applying a certain kind of method, um, um, you know, sharing findings a certain way. There was a, a an article that I recently a chapter that I recently published in a, a fabulous book that people should probably get, and maybe we can put it into the, into the notes of this podcast um, about um, ergonomics and design, focusing specifically on pitfalls and failures. That one uh, and people's stories. That one, in that one, I, I shared a story about a tram that was designed a certain way, and I was brought in to. Um, as as a as a as a youngling, I was brought in to actually do some research, and 
things there could have gone a bit better than they did. Um, but I learned from those failures as well. And now I have a very different way of kind of engaging with industry when it comes to sharing, you know, outcomes and results and so on. So, yeah, so I think it's a, a big question. Um, I'm not sure if I've, if I've answered it fully, but um, there's a lot of insight that one can find from failures if they just are amenable to it and know where to look and have a healthy outlook towards it. It's logical that we don't want to publish failures, clearly, but what you've just explained is that they are a learning experience. If we publish or if we explain where the failure has occurred and we explain where where we've changed something, something good comes from that. Absolutely. I think, you know, you've hit the nail on the head, really, and that kind of spells it out really well. I don't really think that um, if you obsess... If you um, if you let if you ruminate on the failure in a way that doesn't allow you to grow from it and doesn't doesn't isn't attuned towards a growth mindset generally, then I think um, you are going to struggle in any kind of career, let alone an academic one or a research focused one, because it would be foolhardy to think that things are always about success and things are always full of success. And, you know, whenever I put my business cases in for, you know, career continuance as someone who's on a contract in research, which is often the case for people that just do research, you know, you often talk about the grants that you put in that didn't get up. And you paint a story about how they then shaped the other successes that you found. So people can see that you're trying and that you work hard and they can see the sustained effort that's in place. Um, it, it does, I think there's a lot of shame, Sharon, attached to failure. And I think that that's part of the problem. Um, people want to be able to talk about themselves in ways that um, are favorable. But I think that there's a lot of virtue and there's a lot of strength to be found around sharing the failures and the things that haven't worked. And they may not necessarily lead to success at all. Um, but if you learn from it, then you can apply those to other things that you're doing and, and find success elsewhere. So that that mantra that I said absolutely holds for me. And I'll, I'll, I can never sort of seeing it failing for me, if you will. Thanks for joining us at the Human Factors and Ergonomics Hub, brought to you by the Human Factors and Ergonomics Society of Australia, where human-centred design really matters. If you like this podcast, make us your favourite in your podcast app. We look forward to chatting with you next time.